Hi, well, welcome to this COVID-19 special encephalitis podcast by the Encephalitis Society. We've taken many of your questions and over the next hour we plan to answer as many as possible. We just want to reassure any viewers as well that the Encephalitis Society services remain largely unaffected by this recent outbreak. And so if you need any support or information, our teams remain at your service. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online. I'm very grateful to have two very eminent specialists joining me today, Professor Tom Solomon and Dr. Lance Turtle. Tom, Lance, perhaps you'd like to say a few words about your specialist areas and where you work, along with any involvement that you've had in the COVID-19 outbreak so far. Thanks, Ava. So uh, I'm yeah, a consultant in infectious diseases uh, in Liverpool. Uh, so I'm on the front line of this as our, um, our unit is one of the high level isolation units for the UK. So we took some of the first patients uh, with this condition um, and through the um, health protection research unit in emerging and zoonotic infections, I'm also very heavily involved in the research response to this. So I'm both looking after patients and doing research on COVID-19. Thanks, Lance. Thanks, and uh, I'm Tom Solomon. I'm based in Liverpool as well at the University of Liverpool and the National Institute for Health Research, Health Protection Research Unit in Emerging and Zoonotic Infections, where I'm the director. So our Emerging Infections Research Unit uh, exists to support Public Health England in protecting the UK from emerging infections. Uh, it's a collaboration between between the University of Liverpool, University of Oxford, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and Public Health England. And so we uh, responded very rapidly once it became clear that there was this new emerging virus causing COVID-19. And we're supporting research, a collaboration really of many hospitals across the country who are recruiting patients into the study so that we can understand uh, the disease a bit better. We're collecting samples to improve the diagnostics we are also collecting samples to understand the disease mechanisms a bit better. And Lance and, and many others are working to support these efforts. Thanks both so much for taking the time to join us today. We've got quite a few uh, questions from around the world. So I'm gonna jump straight in with the first question, which is COVID-19 is a coronavirus, but what is that? And why is this spreading so much faster than other everyday viruses that cause coughs and colds? So COVID-19 is a disease which is caused by a novel coronavirus. So coronaviruses are a, a family of viruses which get their name because they look a bit like a crown when you take a greatly magnified picture of them. So the reason this disease is spreading so fast is because it's a new virus in humans and so there's no one's got any immunity at all. So nobody's seen it before. So that's why it's really important that everyone should do things like wash their hands many times a day, uh, avoid unnecessary social contact, avoid unnecessary travel. So those are key things uh, which can help the spread of the virus. It is spreading faster than uh, uh, common coughs and colds, but it's actually not that much faster. Common coughs and colds also do spread quite fast, actually. And in fact, there are other coughs and colds caused by other coronaviruses that have been in the human population for a long time before this coronavirus. But they cause very, very mild disease. So you don't notice it in the same way uh, that you notice this virus, which, which in, in, in a small number of people can have uh, very serious effects. 
Thank you. Well, our next question was, our family is affected by encephalitis at the moment, and we need to go to our local hospital for further tests. However, that hospital has cases of coronavirus there. Should we still attend? So people in that position should follow the advice and guidance that's given by their local hospital. And all local hospitals will be contacting patients and telling them what they should do in different circumstances. Um, so if, for example, someone is acutely unwell with encephalitis, then they must go to hospital. That's an emergency and they need urgent treatment. If, on the other hand, uh, they have had encephalitis in the past and they are due for an outpatient appointment, perhaps as follow-up from that illness, then that might not be quite so important and that might be something that you can cancel or defer but again the local hospital uh, uh, should be uh, giving you guidance as to what to do uh, with that. If you have encephalitis and you're having ongoing treatment which is needed to, to keep the encephalitis under control then you should, you should be attending for that and hospitals have uh, infection control policies in place which will limit the spread within the hospital and so they should be able to tell you which areas are, are safe for you to go to and that will be, that will be fine. And the fact is there's now this, this virus is now spreading within the community so actually it, 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 would be, it, it would be hard to avoid it and just not going to hospital would not be enough uh, to avoid the virus completely so the best things you can do if you're unwell stay at home for seven days or 14 days if there's an illness in the family wash your hands throughout the day as many times as possible practice social distancing stay at least two meters away from people and avoid unnecessary contact and unnecessary travel thank you well our next questioner said I had viral encephalitis in the past. Am I more likely to catch COVID-19 or be at risk if I do catch it? I think that's an easy one to answer. There's no reason to believe that somebody who's had viral encephalitis in the past and has now got over it is at any more risk of either catching this infection or being at risk of severe disease if they do. So I think we can be reassuring to people there. Okay, and that's specifically around viral encephalitis. Yeah. Thank you. So the next question said, my daughter was nine months old when she had a herpes simplex viral encephalitis. She's now six and still on medication for epilepsy, as well as a daily dose of antivirals to keep recurring cold sores at bay. She also had pneumonia one and a half years ago. Is she more at risk from COVID-19 than a child without prior health problems? Thanks. Well, I think there's a couple of issues to consider there. So um, it sounds like this is a family that's had a tough time, clearly. And um, uh, she's now currently on medicine for epilepsy and also antivirals to keep the cold sores at bay. Um, but in terms of risk factors for COVID-19, we know that people at risk are those that have chronic ill health. And we also know that people at risk are those are the elderly. And in fact, children seem to be less likely to get a severe infection. So we have to then think about this. Here's a six-year-old who um, has had infections. Uh, she's had pneumonia a, a year and a half ago, but she's relatively well at the moment. So it's, it, she's somewhere in between. I would be, the fact that she's young uh, would make me less concerned. And in fact, the, the, the chronic conditions that she's had are not those that have been recognized as being associated with severe infection. So those conditions are things like high blood pressure or 
uh, chronic lung problems. She's had pneumonia just once a year and a half ago. So I think I would probably be uh, encouraging overall, but I'd be interested to hear whether Lance has a different perspective on that. No, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, unless that there is some underlying predisposition to infection, then otherwise she would be the same as the rest of the population. Having had pneumonia once, as far as we know, is not a risk factor. Uh, for getting worse disease with 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 COVID-19, unlike things like diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. So, um, so no, I, my my suspicion is that she would be at no greater risk uh, than the rest of the population. And of course, being age six, that risk is is extremely low. I mean, the number of cases, thankfully, that we've seen in, in young children, children than less than ten, has been has been very very little uh, uh, compared with the number of cases in other age groups. Thank you. I'm sure the family will find uh, some reassurance in that and, and the many similar families who have similar situations. So does encephalitis fall under the underlying medical condition that experts talk about? Does it mean I'm in the vulnerable persons category? I'm not sure how careful people who have had encephalitis need to be. So the answer to that is uh, it depends. <laughs> so um, like Tom said earlier, if you've had encephalitis, which usually is an acute infection, um, then that means that, that that illness should resolve. And after that, uh, if you recover, then there's no reason to think that you're any different risk uh, from COVID-19 after that. The same goes for autoimmune encephalitis. If you've had that and you've been treated and you've recovered, then again, there should be no increase in risk. The one exception to that is somebody who would be uh, under ongoing treatment for autoimmune encephalitis with treatment that might suppress the immune system. And I see that some of your other questioners have also brought this, brought this point up. So if your immune system is suppressed, then under those circumstances, then uh, we would expect you to be at increased risk of, of, of COVID-19. Exactly how much increased risk, I can't say. But I would suggest that anyone who is in that category, who's undergoing active treatment with immune suppression for autoimmune encephalitis or any other autoimmune disease or cancer treatment, for example, that they should take uh, additional precautions. They should regard themselves as being in an at-risk group and they may want to consider following the government's advice of, of self-isolation at home. And they should also follow the same measures that I've outlined already, washing hands, social distancing, uh, etc. Thank you. Can you get encephalitis from COVID-19? We recently read of a patient in China whose CSF or cerebrospinal fluid had tested positive for COVID-19. Does that mean that he had encephalitis? So that's a very good question. So I haven't seen that specific case, so I can't comment uh, on that without knowing more of the details. Um, what I can say is that there have been a large number of cases in China. We have quite good information on many of those cases, and there is not very much in the way of, of disease of the brain or symptoms that might be associated with disease of the brain uh, uh, reported. Now, uh, many viruses cause mostly non-brain disease, non-encephalitis, they cause something else and they occasionally get into the brain. So, of course, it is plausible that this virus could get into the brain, but at the moment, I have not seen uh, any convincing evidence that it actually does. Thank you. So, the next question is, given it's possible to contract autoimmune types of encephalitis after surviving some viral types of encephalitis, does this risk increase if infected by the COVID-19 virus? 
Yeah, well, we know that after, for example, herpes simplex virus encephalitis, there is in a small number of patients a risk that they will recover from that. And then they'll go on and get autoimmune encephalitis caused by NMDA antibodies or associated with it. But there's no evidence at all that somebody who's had COVID-19, uh, not causing encephalitis, but just a COVID-19 illness, will get an autoimmune encephalitis. There's nothing to suggest that at all. And we've seen you know, now many thousands of patients, sadly, with COVID-19 infection in China. And um, there's been a little bit of neurological disease acutely, uh, as Lance mentioned, but there's not been any evidence of people who recovered from COVID-19 and then developed an autoimmune encephalitis. But it's a space that we will keep watching, I guess. Thank you. Some of our members have children who have had autoimmune encephalitis. They've received lots of immunotherapy, such as steroids, IV, plasma exchange, and in some cases, second line treatments like rituximab. Are they at greater risk of COVID-19 and what precautions should they take? So somebody like that who is on active immunosuppressive treatment at the moment, they are the sorts of people that we do need to be especially careful about. And that's really why we have all these measures, the social distancing measures, et cetera, et cetera. We know that at least 99% of this, people who get this infection will recover. It, it may well be more like 99.9% .9 of people will recover. But there are there is a small proportion who get severe disease, and that's the elderly and those who have uh, chronic illness, and in particular immunosuppression is a risk factor. So what proportions do they need to take? Well, these are people who should be very careful now about being in self-isolation at home, keeping away from anyone who might be ill, they shouldn't go out at all. And then the other issue becomes, well, what if a family member has become unwell? And unwell just means a cough in this context, but we know that a, a new cough or a fever could be a sign that this is somebody with COVID-19. So the advice is that if somebody in the family uh, develops a condition like that, they should try if at all possible to go and stay somewhere else. We really need to protect people who have a risk of getting severe disease. I think the questioner in, in that case also was, um, if I remember, their immunosuppression treatment had happened some time ago. Um, so I think there's some confusion in people's minds. They don't know if that means that they, they still have immune systems that are of concern. Okay. Well, so, so clearly if they're actively being immunosuppressed now, they need to follow those, that guidance I've, I've suggested. It depends what we mean by a long time ago. I mean, if somebody had these treatments many years ago, um, their immune system has probably recovered. And I suppose a guide might be that um, if you are the sort of person, you know, if it was maybe more recently, a couple of months ago, then you, you, you should be more careful. Okay. And it might be if you're finding you're getting every cough and cold that goes round, that's a suggestion that maybe you are slightly more vulnerable. But Lance might like to comment on how long it takes for the immune system to recover after these types of therapies. Yeah, so that, it's a good question, that. It's quite variable. It will depend on exactly what the treatment was, and it will vary between individual to individual. Um, generally, with the kind of treatment that's mentioned here, so steroids, uh, which are a sort of broad immunosuppressant drug, and they mentioned rituximab, which is a special antibody treatment which targets the uh, certain cells that make antibodies in the blood and protect you against a wide range of different things. So they, you, most people recover 
from those after a few months. So if it was anything more than sort of three to six months ago, then the risk is going to be lower. But I mean, the, the, the sort of short answer is the, the, the closer to the immune suppression you are, the greater the risk will be. And that risk will gradually decrease as, as time from immune suppression uh, uh, goes on. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you. Some people are also concerned that during and or post treatment for autoimmune encephalitis that they have depleted B cells. Does, um, what does this mean for catching COVID-19 and is there anything that they should do? So this is, this is actually very similar to the last question. So, so this drug rituximab, which your last questioner uh, um, mentioned, that's the drug which depletes B cells. And B cells are the cells which turn into antibody-making cells, which protect you uh, against a wide range of different things. So, so again, it's similar to the answer to the last question. If you've just had uh, rituximab or a similar treatment that is aimed at um, uh, knocking out your B cells in order to treat your autoimmune encephalitis. If you had that two weeks ago or three weeks ago, then your immune system will be will be lower than, than a, a, that of a healthy person who hasn't had that treatment. But if it was four or five months ago, the effect will be much less. If it was a year or two ago, then you know you can regard yourself as basically normal. Thank you. For those who've made a full recovery from autoimmune encephalitis, I think we touched upon this earlier, the question was, are they still considered immune compromised and more vulnerable to COVID-19? So that's a much easier question. The answer to that is no. So if you fully recovered and not on immune suppression, then you are the same as the general population. Thank you. Another question has said, my family member is still recovering from autoimmune encephalitis and is still receiving immunosuppressants. And again, you, I think you touched upon this a minute ago. And their specific question was, what are the risks to them in this current outbreak and what precautions should we be taking as we're frightened that we're a risk to them? Thank you. I did touch on that earlier and it is an important question. Um, the risks to them are that they might become infected with this virus from someone in the family or somebody outside and because they're on immunosuppression they're more likely to get severe infection. Um, it's worth saying though that when we say severe infection that might mean that they need to, to go into hospital and of course at the moment the vast majority of people who get this infection don't need to go into hospital at all so you know we don't want this to be too frightening by severe infection we're meaning somebody that might need to go into hospital they might need special uh, support in terms of fluid if they're not drinking well they might need to go on oxygen so you know there's lots of support available in hospital um, the precautions to take are for them to be isolated as far as they can and for their contacts so going out at all I mean that's uh, that's absolutely clear now they should not be going out um, except to go in the garden to get some fresh air um, and then within the house um, they as long as the other family members are well that's okay but if any of the other family members get a cough or, or any suggestion of being unwell then they have to keep away from this person who's immunosuppressed and that really means that the first hint of something go and stay with somebody else having said all that this is going to be a long process you know we're not talking about a week or two this is going to go on for several months and we have to remember that if somebody's been unwell we don't want them to be stuck in a room somewhere at the back of the house and, and, and getting miserable. So we really have to look after our mental health as well as our physical health. I think that's an important point. Um, so the next question is said, my daughter had an autoimmune encephalitis in October and now has a diagnosis of MOG antibody disorder. What is your advice? 
So the advice in that situation, um, which is obviously significant and is concerning for that family, is, is very similar to what we've given to the last few questions around treatment for autoimmune encephalitis. MOG is another form of autoimmune encephalitis, basically. Um, and if you're on immune suppression, then you're at greater risk. Whereas if you've not been, if the treatment's been some time ago and your immune system has recovered from that, then we don't expect you to be at increased risk. So it depends on what the ongoing treatment that is actually happening in that in that case is. So, um, so our advice is, is very similar to what Tom has just said. So wash your hands regularly, uh, practice social distancing, avoid unnecessary contact and going out, etc. I think it's probably also worth at this point just saying a few words about what exactly what symptoms, you know, what the typical symptoms of COVID-19 are and what people should watch out for, you know, in their own families, particularly among the, the family members who might be contacts of patients with autoimmune encephalitis who are undergoing treatment. So the, the, the typical symptoms are fever and a dry cough. So that's, those are the commonest symptoms. Um, the other common symptoms include uh, feeling breathlessness or tightness in the chest and then the sort of systemic uh, symptoms you get with virus infections are also common. So, so aching of the muscles uh, and, and fatigue, uh, feeling like you have a flu-like illness. And most people are, are, are familiar with that. And in, in, in some studies where they, this has been examined, most patients have more than one symptom as well. So you don't have only a cough and nothing else, or only feeling tired and, and nothing else. It's usually a, a constellation, it's usually a combination of, of different symptoms. But basically, if you have a new continuous cough or a high fever, those are the cardinal symptoms, then that, should, that, that means you should separate that person from the person who's undergoing autoimmune encephalitis treatment and has a suppressed immune system by some way. And that could be you know, putting one of those people in a separate room or it could be staying with somebody else or you know, there's a number of different ways in which that could be done. Uh, and there's good advice on the uh, uh, gov.uk website about how to do home isolation and social distancing. What other websites would you suggest um, this is going to be viewed from people around the world? Are, uh, you know, what, what other websites can people go to for um, that type of information? That's a good question. I have not done a comprehensive look. Uh, at that, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, most countries will have a government agency which is responsible for giving public health advice. Right. Uh, and I would say that should be the first port of call for, uh, for people in that particular region. Um, in, the, in the UK, uh, that's, that's Public Health England, which is you know, on the gov.uk uh, website. Mm. Tom, are there any websites that you would recommend? Well, uh, so certainly in the UK, we, we look at the Public Health England Department of Health website and um, each country will have its own uh, web guidance uh, coming from their own public health authorities. I think it's fair to say that different countries are at different stages in the, in the evolution of this disease. So what applies in the UK will not necessarily apply in other parts of the world. But having said that, advice on basic precautions like how to wash your hands um, on respiratory hygiene etc that's pretty standard and so in the country uh, particularly in Latin America where they are behind the curve in terms of this disease you know it started in China and then in Europe we're now um, had a, a growing curve Latin America is not so far advanced yet and I think their website similarly will be a little bit behind and people there 
could look at the Public Health England website for guidance on those measures. But in terms of things like social distancing and, and other practices, it depends very much where you are up to in your outbreak. And that's why local, local information is more important. There is more general information on the World Health Organization website as well, of course. Thank you. So moving into our last few questions, um, my daughter is four years post-diagnosis, this questioner wrote, and has been off rituximab and steroids for a year. However, she is currently taking Emuran, doesn't have any B cells and is on IV IG. What is her risk and is her immune system able to handle something of this nature? So, um... Uh, Imuran is a drug called azathioprine, so that is a form of immune suppression. Uh, so this is somebody who is immune suppressed in that case. It's worth noting that azathioprine is a relatively mild form of immune suppression and actually the risk of, of serious infections in patients taking azathioprine is not all that much higher than the background population. Um, but then there's a comment about not having any B cells, so again um, if if this person had had rituximab more than a year ago, I would have expected their B cells to return. So I don't know if there's something else that's happened there or some other treatment has been given or that's part of the disorder perhaps. Um, but that does place that individual at greater risk. On the other hand, that person is being treated with IVIG. So that's giving antibodies from other people. So that's replacing a bit uh, the function of the missing B cells. So it's perhaps not as bad as uh, uh, as all that. Um, nevertheless, uh, I would say her risk is increased compared with the background population. Um, and, and I would say that she should follow the same advice that we have you know, already given in answers to other similar questions. Thank you. So this questioner said, I've read that the government, and I think this person was from the UK, and now saying that increased risk from severe illness from the virus includes chronic neurological conditions. Would this include viral or autoimmune encephalitis? The, uh, yes, the, the, the person who sent this in is right that um, the UK did issue new guidance on the 20th of March, um, which is just a few days ago, on uh, details of who is considered to be at risk because of uh, increased age, et cetera, other chronic diseases. And they do mention uh, chronic neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, a learning disability, or cerebral palsy. So um, the question here really is that, that that's what it says on the website. Now, um, chronic neurological conditions, viral or autoimmune encephalitis is not mentioned specifically. And so, I think it's a matter of judgment here. And I think if somebody has had those diseases and has made a good recovery, then they don't really fall into the category of, of being at risk. But if they have not had a full neurological recovery, um, then they should consider themselves in that group, even though they're not named specifically. Okay, thank you. Um, if I get COVID-19, what medications should I take? And is there anything else you can suggest to help get through it? There's no antivirus treatment yet for, for the, the virus that causes COVID-19. So it's really what we call symptomatic treatment, treatment to get you through the non-specific features, which is primarily fever and uh, cough and aching muscles. 
Um, the cough, we don't really have anything that helps specifically with that, but fever and aching muscles can be helped. And it's the kind of uh, tablets that you would take for any other flu-like illness, except, uh, so we, I would start with paracetamol because we know that's safe and it works fine. There's been some um, suggestion, you may have seen it in the last few days, about whether ibuprofen is okay to take or not, because uh, ibuprofen is sometimes associated with uh, bad side effects with people who have chronic lung conditions. So at this stage, it's, to be honest, it's slightly messy, the data that's out there, as it's an evolving situation and there's conflicting opinions. Um, I, and therefore, I would start with paracetamol, but I would certainly say that somebody who's taken ibuprofen um, should not worry. And similarly, if people are taking it for other medical conditions, then we know they're benefiting definitely in those medical conditions. Whereas um, uh, the story of, around ibuprofen and COVID-19, it, it may all turn out to be nothing. I think most people think it will turn out to be nothing. Um, so I would probably uh, not worry too much about that. I don't know, if Lance, if you've uh, caught up with more recent literature than I may have. Yeah, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm certainly aware of the story. And the, the, um, the idea here is that ibuprofen is actually doing something specific for, specifically bad in COVID. And that it might cause the receptor for the virus to be increased and make you more susceptible to disease or more susceptible to bad disease. And I think that that's, that is um, uh, only an idea. There's no evidence at all that's actually true. Um, I think that particularly in younger, healthier people who want to take ibuprofen or, or other drugs of the same class, that would include aspirin, uh, Voltarol, diclofenac, naproxen. It's a class of drugs called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. These are very, very commonly used, commonly taken drugs by lots of people, uh, particularly for um, arthritis and other sporting injuries and things like that. And for that, they're absolutely fine. And I don't think those people have anything to worry about. I don't think there's any uh, risk, particularly uh, uh, in that group. The one thing I would say about those drugs is that particularly in older people and particularly in people who are who are sufficiently unwell to be hospitalized, they do have some quite significant side effects. Um, and we don't use them in hospital practice at all, really, because we're looking after mostly an older population who've got multiple other medical problems often. And they can have very significant side effects, particularly on the kidney, um, and they can cause bleeding from the stomach, in, in at least in some people. So if somebody is uh, of an older age, and particularly if they're on other uh, blood pressure medications, I would encourage them to avoid taking drugs like ibuprofen for any severe acute illness, not just COVID-19. So if they fell ill with flu or they developed pneumonia, again, those drugs can be dangerous in that specific subgroup of people. Um, and, and there may well be information that comes out that people who get very sick with COVID and need to go into hospital do get bad side effects from non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And that's because they're very sick patients with pneumonia, just like any other kind of pneumonia. Um, it's, I, don't think that the, I don't think there's going to turn out to be a specific relationship between COVID-19 and, and non-steroidals beyond that of any other severe acute illness. Thank you. Um, a sneaky question from me. Um, do we need a vaccine for COVID-19? And if we do, how far away from um, seeing a vaccine that can be used in human population do you think we are? Yes, we do need a vaccine. Um, how far away are we? There are already vaccines that have gone into the earliest phases of trials. There's one in particular in America that started recently. 
And it's, this has been incredibly quick. It's now 80 days since this virus was first described uh, causing a problem in patients in Wuhan in China. And to have a vaccine going into phase one trials within 80 days is, is incredible. Um, but vaccines take a long time to make. So a phase one trial is just saying, can we give it to healthy people and will it not cause any harm in them? And those are the studies that are starting in America. After that, there are subsequent phase two and phase three trials. And um, these take longer because you have to allow time to see whether they have uh, caused an immune response, which might be protective for the patients. But ultimately, these are large studies that, that take many, many months to do. And even if we complete the final study that shows, yes, we do have a vaccine that works, you then have to scale it up, which also uh, takes a, a long, long time. So if everything went as fast as it could do, it's likely that the first vaccine available widely would be in a, somewhere between one year and 18 months. Um, so, we, I, which means that we're not going to have a quick answer from, from vaccines. People are working on a whole range of vaccines around the country for, for um, COVID-19 and for other viruses. And Lance is actually leading a vaccine development group in Liverpool. So I don't know if you have anything to add, Lance. Not, not really beyond that. No, I mean, I think that the we we still have quite a bit to learn about the virus and about the infection in humans, and you know exactly what immunity looks like uh, with this virus in the human population, given that it's a new virus. So the other kind of common cold coronaviruses that that are already in the human population, people do develop immunity to, but the viruses change. Um, there are several different types of virus, and so you can be reinfected with the same virus, basically. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen with this virus in, in the population. Is it going to stay as one virus and we're going to get herd immunity and then it's going to become a, in the future, it'll be a, a trivial infection in children where they get almost nothing and then it, the adults are all immune. That's one possibility. Um, or is it something which is going to change and then keep coming back as, as uh, you know, a bit like flu does, where you get a slightly different uh, virus coming every, every few years is another possibility. So maybe, we, maybe one, one vaccine will do the job. Maybe we'll need more than one vaccine. Maybe we'll need to remake vaccines every few years. And we just don't know the answer to that yet. Thank you. Is there anything else that either of you would like to um, add or, or share um, before um, I say a few words of conclusion? wash your hands yeah i was going to say exactly that we've had a long discussion when we've covered important points but people should remember the single most important thing they can do is wash their hands properly um, and wash them often and uh, if they do have a cough or a cold uh, be very careful to catch that in a tissue and dispose of the tissue and then wash their hands because that is the best way to protect our loved ones there's a very good story in the New York Times of an example of that, of a school in Beijing that stayed open during the SARS epidemic. And they did very, very diligent hand hygiene and very simple things like keeping people off school if they were unwell, measuring temperatures and sending children back home. And the teachers led hand washing and they just did very simple, basic things. And, and not only were there, were there no cases of SARS in the school, they had the best attendance record that they had ever had because nobody got anything. Nobody got any ordinary coughs and colds or flu or gastroenteritis or anything like that. Just because they did really simple things really, really well. It's amazing how much we can't wash our hands. But actually, if we just do those really basic things, we can protect ourselves and our loved ones really effectively. 
Wow. Well, that feels like a good message um, for us to end. We've covered um, an awful lot of questions there. We're deeply grateful to you both for taking time out of what we know is probably one of the busiest times of, of your careers. On behalf of all of our members, you know, please accept our grateful thanks for all that you do, um, along with all the rest of our scientific advisory committee. Please stay safe, and if anyone has any further questions, please contact the support team at encephalitis.info. So thanks very much, everybody, and stay safe.